0: Let's do it.
1: All right. Welcome to Ed Leaders, the podcast covering all the interesting ideas about leadership, strategy, culture and the business of cater to 12 education. I'm your host, Luke Kelly, and joining me each week in the chair is my co-host and colleague, Matthew Irving. Today's guest is Dr. Paul Browning, who has over 20 years' experience in principal and headmaster roles in independent schools. He's a published author of two books and well-known for his work in the realms of thinking. And Matt, I'm a little bit nervous today about having a published author on the show, but without further ado, let's get to it. Paul, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Luke, for the opportunity to actually uh, speak with you today. I guess to get us started, let's talk about your journey uh, in schools. Well, my journey, I actually trained as a primary school teacher. So there's very
2: few headmasters or principals of school K-12 to schools who are actually trained primary teachers. So I trained as a primary teacher. Proud primary teacher is my uh, my background and heritage. Uh, I started my career at a school called Jibgate, which is a very small independent school in the Southern Highlands of New South Wales. So it it was a a junior school, part of Winterfell West schools. I I got that job before I finished my degree at university. So I finished with a diploma and then studied part time to finish my degree once I started working there. And my first class was actually a kindergarten class. So 28 five year olds. So a pretty scary, daunting way to start your career as a, as a male teacher, a male primary teacher, where males in the primary sector are very few. Farmers. It's a rare species, isn't it? Yes. It's a very rare species and not one that I want to go back to that job, but it was it was kind of fun, uh, but they're kind of not as well. So my first class, I taught Jimmy Barnes as kids. I had uh, Mark Opitz, uh, who was the, um, the producer for In Excess, Billy Birmingham, 12th man. So, Barrel has uh, some really interesting people who live in it, and so some really interesting people in my first class. Pity poor them. And from
1: there?
2: From there, uh, I kind of went into a couple of leadership positions there. I ended up being the early childhood coordinator. So, I was looking after the pre prep to year two programs there. And then from there, I actually started applying for a few principalship roles, which was a bit. uh, unrealistic, perhaps, of me, but why not give it a crack, see how we go. Uh, And I ended up landing the job at Bergman Anglican School. So they were looking for a founding principal, uh, but they were starting the school with just uh, kindergarten to year three. And so they appointed me as essentially the head or the first head of the school, but head of the junior school. And uh, once we got so each year Bergman progressively grew. So we added a year level on each year. So year three, four, five and six. And when we got to year six, their intention was to appoint a principal of the school. But uh, they uh, foolishly, perhaps, uh, employed as principal of the school. So I continued on the journey until we reached year 12. Once we got to year 12, uh, 2008, I decided it was hand, time to hand the reins over to somebody else. And I applied for this job at support school. And here we are.
0: So, so, Paul, what's interesting about that is, you know, you've you've spoken publicly about, I guess, that idea of vocation to teaching, and that we're called into service um, for others. And and I guess I'm I'm interested to know then to kind of take that leap into to Bergman as that foundation head. Was there in a moment, I guess, of, of awakening for you? Were you, were you called in, into principalship, or was it just something that you know you, you perhaps were ambitious for, and and you were absolutely gunning for it?
2: it's an interesting question isn't it are we called and certainly teaching is a vocation we don't go into teaching because we want to make money and we actually go into teaching because we want to make a difference uh, and we want to serve the young people who are entrusted to our care Uh, and it's a really rewarding job and vocation and i can't think of another vocation where you can have such an impact on so many people so it's a great job was i called into the job perhaps i was you know when i finished year 12 like most year 12 students i didn't really know what i wanted to do i had no idea i was good at maths uh, i was good at engineering science and the typical career path for a, a boy in that, you know, who was good at those subjects is engineering so i kind of was thinking about aeronautical engineering or uh, perhaps architecture i uh, had no idea so three mates and i would took a year off just to spend time to reflect on who we were and what we wanted to do uh, coming from a christian background I was invited to teach Sunday school that year and, and found I actually really enjoyed it. I really had great fun teaching young kids and thought, you know, I could actually probably make a go of this. So I fell into teaching that way. In terms of moving on to principalship, uh, I guess probably ambition is, you know, has a lot to do with it as well. You know, got bored just with teaching and thought that I could do or have a bigger impact on more people if I was in a leadership role. So was keen to apply for those leadership roles just to keep me interested and keep me keep me motivated. Uh, was I called to Bergman? Uh, it was pretty unusual to be appointed to Bergman when I was. My experience was fairly limited. Uh, and so, yes, probably was very blessed in that opportunity. Uh, was I called to St Paul's? Well, I wouldn't say so, but I was very uh, had very clear ideas of what sort of school i wanted to go to and, and st paul's fitted that bill and uh, when i got here i certainly felt that i had been called but i didn't realize that as i was applying for the job so a bit of ambition bit of calling a <laughs> bit of service <laughs> motivation <laughs>
0: I think that's interesting. I mean, one of the things that I we sort of talk to leaders about is that, you know, going into, to say, headship or, or leadership, you do need a level of ambition. Um, and I might argue that you also need a level of healthy ego, uh, if you like. I um, mean, if, if you didn't have those things, you wouldn't put yourself up to the kind of the, the ridicule and the, the demands of the job. How does that resonate with you?
2: I would agree with that. You do you do have to have a degree of ambition. You need to keep that in check. As you said, ego can be you know, a good thing, but it also can be a bad thing. If it consumes you and you enjoy the power, uh, then really you're not going to do a very good job because it is a job of service. So you need a healthy dose of humility, uh, the willingness to actually reflect on who you are and what you're actually are capable of. And at the end of the day. Uh, yeah, we're all acting in a sense. So it's not necessarily the best person for the job, but certainly work hard to improve and get better at what I actually do and continually look for ways to improve myself and my leadership uh, to get better at what I actually do. So I don't have all the answers by any stretch of the imagination. You know, do I make mistakes? Of course I do. Uh, but hopefully in that show a level of humility alongside of that sense of ambition.
1: I guess uh, coming from Adelaide and then being over here in Perth, uh, never really knew a lot about St. Paul's until I read uh, your book, Principled, uh, and I guess the first few pages of that describes kind of the experiences of, of when you arrived at St. At Paul's and what you landed into. Um, I guess do you want to talk a little, just, I guess, for the listeners that don't know a little bit about the context of St. Paul's and I guess what extent... Uh, were you prepared when you got there uh, for St Paul's uh, for what would lay ahead? Did you kind of, were you aware or how does that sit with you now in, in reflection?
2: Starting a school. So the privilege of starting Bergman Anglican School, it was just a remarkable experience. So when I was appointed there, uh, I was after my interview, I was taken out to where the site of the school would actually be. And it was literally a paddock, no trees, just long grass. Uh, And the person who was then on the board at the time said, this is where the school will be. But that was a bit of a daunting experience. I had a full time job, I had a family, two young kids. Here was I moving to Canberra to go to a place where there was literally nothing. But the privilege was to build something that reflected what I valued and what I believed about education. Uh, And so that was an immense privilege to actually create a community, uh, a school that really reflected who I was and what I believed about education. After 10 years, uh, you know, if I kept going there, I probably would have worn staff into the ground because you really need a a different level of energy to start a school. And it needed someone to actually consolidate that school. So uh, they appointed Stephen Bowers, who just yesterday announced his retirement, but he was a remarkable man to actually take the job on and bring it to fulfillment. So he's done a great job. And I was keen to go to a school that was established. I wanted to keep growing my leadership skills and capacities. So I, I, chose, I was keen to go to another religious based school, hopefully an Anglican school. I wasn't particularly interested in boarding. Co-education is something I am passionate about and a large school as well. And I wanted to know what could I do to effectively change culture, uh, change an organisation from what it is to something different. And not necessarily because the culture was bad. And I wasn't thinking that at St Paul's at the time, but St Paul's fit in the bill. So. It, yeah, I landed the job. I was a bit surprised I actually landed the job because it's a, it's a big school. It's a pre-prep to year 12 school. We have an international school. At the time, there were some 1,500 students, so it is a large school on 125 acres. And it was 50 years old when I arrived as well, so quite an established tradition. I didn't know a lot about the school, apart from that. Uh, I knew that the previous principal had been moved on, uh, and I knew the financial situation was not particularly great not necessarily in terms of money in the bank, but the way the finances were managed uh, and what the accounts looked like. I knew it had a history of abuse here, but I didn't know the extent of it. So for the listeners, St Paul's School was case study number 34 into the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. Uh, In the early 80s and the 90s, there were two pedophiles that preyed on young boys here. It was a boys school at the time. The first was a music tutor, and he abused probably up to about 20 boys. But then in 1988, uh, they appointed a school counsellor and he had come from Brisbane Grammar. Uh, And at the time, the school, I don't believe realised, but perhaps they did. There's lots of theories around that. But he came to St Paul's and over 10 years has abused at least another 120 boys. Uh, I think it's a lot more than that. It's probably upwards of 200. uh, But those people haven't yet come forward. And before that, while he was at Brisbane Grammar, he abused equal numbers as well. He's quite possibly the worst pedophile uh, in Australia. Uh, Quite horrific. When he was found out in 1997, he took his own life, which in a sense was a blessing, but then also a curse as well, because those victims never, in a sense, got their justice, their day in court. He, He chose the coward's way out. But the impact on the school culture was just incredible just remarkable uh, you don't understand the impact that abuse has on a young person until you meet a victim uh, in their 40s and tells who tells their story of what's happened to them uh, over the course of all those years from the day that they lost their innocence to the hands of a, a school counselor who is meant to be the most trusted person on the school campus uh, and then the ensuing impact on their families and all their relationships and then also the impact on the school's culture so it was a culture here when I arrived at mistrust. Uh, and that played out in all sorts of ways, like how staff interacted with students, how the leadership interacted with staff, how staff collaborated with each other, the physical environment and how that was set up to show that people weren't to be trusted. Uh, it,
1: it was not particularly great at all. And so do you think you were prepared for walking into that?
2: No, and <laughs> no. in a sense, that's perhaps where that notion of a calling comes from. Yeah, I didn't realise at the time, uh, but but perhaps I was the right person for the job. I, I I I don't know, but certainly it was a job that was planted in my lap, and I needed to face that job and take that responsibility. So yeah, it was. in I prepared your book, it
1: would definitely seem like you were the right person for the job, even though you might not have known it at the time, Matt.
0: Yeah, look, yeah, Paul. Matt, one of the things that I'm curious about um, and it's sort of reflecting on your story, but also the book is just the number of victims that you sat with, the number of victims that shared their stories with you and you walking side by side with them. And, and and no doubt um, for them quite an emotional traumatic experience. But I imagine also for yourself, you know that concept of vicarious trauma and that, that experience. Talk to a little bit about um, you know that that impact on, on you, and how did you best manage walking with those people?
2: Yeah, you often hear the, the the comment that leadership is a really lonely. Position and it is a very lonely position, and it was a very lonely time for me. Uh, but by the same token, it was a real privilege to be invited into the lives of these people. So, for context, prior to the announcement of the Royal Commission's hearing uh, into St Paul's School, uh, once every two months a victim might come forward uh, and put in a claim for compensation. But I didn't really have much contact with them. We just sort of passed it on to the, the school or the church's lawyers for that process to be carried out. But when the public hearing was announced, well, two years prior to that, we spent two years gathering the evidence the, the Royal Commission needed. And there was over 100,000 pieces of evidence that we needed to put together to send into the Royal Commission. Then it was announced. And on that day, uh, there was a guy, a past student who was abused by the music tutor. His pseudonym uh, is Archie Butterfly. And he had a, a blog. It's called It's Not Normal, Is It? uh or or along those lines and on that day of the announcement he actually and victims use the words yeah come out Uh, and he came out and said that he was a victim of abuse and he told his story on that blog in a public forum of what actually occurred to him it was horrific reading but at the same time as doing that he actually accused he said he was abused not only by that music tutor but also a student at the school at the time and that student was currently a teacher at another school in brisbane uh he was a teacher at the moment at brisbane grammar school uh, uh, that was just horrific because the very next day that teacher then took his own life uh, and committed suicide so the trauma, it was just incredible. And what was going on was just remarkable. Uh, and he basically opened the floodgates. So from that day onwards, I was speaking to or listening to or getting text messages from at least three or four victims every day, seven days a week, right up until Christmas. And they were coming forward and sharing their story because nowhere between when they were abused and this point had they been listened to and had they had been heard and believed and now he was their opportunity to tell their story and and i was the one that they were sharing their stories with it was it was both a privilege but also incredibly incredibly difficult uh, and a very lonely place because what they shared with me i i couldn't repeat to anybody else like i couldn't even repeat it to my wife so you know much to her frustration when i go home you know she said to me on many occasions paul you're not the same person what's going on and i i just could not repeat it to her because she didn't deserve to hear what i had heard either so i kind of had to carry that myself i ended up writing so i I wrote a journal and i would write down you know things that i'd heard i I spent hours and hours looking for evidence to to support their allegations or their suspicions of what had actually gone on here and there's all sorts of conspiracy theories along with that and i got drawn into that too it was it was a really dark time and it took me I think, at least two years to recover from it. And, and still today, I, I speak with victims.
1: So it's, it's gone on for another six years. And I imagine during that time, you know, you're taking on the burden of all of those conversations, but at the same time, you're still actually trying to run a school. Um, you know yes. <laughs> can you can you kind of elaborate on how you manage that on a day-to-day basis between the going between a you know a dark conversation you know uh, at 10 in the morning and then you know the, the myriad of you know the day to day that we that we have to do in, in a school leadership role? Yeah,
2: and it, it was hard. I've, I've got to admit it was hard, but in a sense it was the job. So when you take the role of a leader and particularly a leader of a community, you need to accept responsibility for that whole community warts and all. So I really had to accept the responsibility for what had happened here in the past, even though it wasn't my fault, even though I wasn't even here at the time. I needed to accept that response, somebody needed to. So I had to be the face of it and accept it. So in a sense, I had to do the job. I needed to heal the past so the school itself as a community could move forward. So those individual students who were victims could move forward uh, and begin their journey of healing. Uh, I had to take that responsibility on. Uh, I guess the other comment I probably make that, too, is the role of a leader, particularly a good leader, is to em- build a team of people around you and empower others to do their job uh, and create the culture for people to flourish. And so the book really is about creating a culture where people can flourish. So the job of a good leader is to be able to do that and empower people and then step back and allow them to do their job. So I was really fortunate where, you know, spent five, six years up to that point building a really great team. And so hands out, in a sense, let them do their job. And so they essentially ran the school. Uh, And that's how it should be for leaders. You should be building the next generation of leaders. You should be mentoring and coaching and guiding them. You should be supporting them and allowing them to do their job and not micromanaging them. So in a sense, the, the, the tasks I was left to do were fairly well, I wouldn't say minimal, but lesser than perhaps if you were a principal who was filled with ego and felt that you were the one and only and you needed to do everything and you needed to be in control. Uh, You've got to let go of control and you've got to empower people to do their job. So I was really blessed to have a great team.
0: Just on that, um, Paul, one of the things that we also reflect on and, you know, you've just talked about how you grow people and and almost like that responsibility for yourself as a school leader to grow people, Um, you know, often we see principals actually um, take it to heart when people want to leave and move on. They find it extremely difficult um, and almost, um, you know, just the heartache that that causes, you know, I think it's a reflection on them. But what I'm hearing you saying is actually that's your responsibility to grow people and actually perhaps even send them out. Yeah, I I know
2: exactly what you're saying because starting Bergman, it was really hard in the early days to get a really good teacher on board when you're starting a new school and when they... uh, you got a phone call saying, yeah, you know, just doing a reference check on on Joan or whoever it was. It was heartbreaking because you you feel this really strong connection with a person and, and this you know, great sense that you, you want them to be loyal to you as a person and, or to the organisation. And when they leave, it's, a, you know, what do I say here? <laughs> do they go with my blessing? And now I've got to find somebody else. And am I going to do that? Uh, And it took me a while to realise that, yeah, my job is actually to grow the next generation of leaders. And when people do move on, that's something to celebrate, Uh, and it is really important to do that. So and if I'm part of that story of their journey, uh, what a great privilege that has been. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but you kind of need to let go of those emotions. And remember, it's not
1: about you, it's about supporting them. And I can imagine during that first five or six years when you were building that executive team at St Paul's, I guess you were repairing trust. Uh, with the community, but building trust with your team. Can you talk to us about how some of the, I guess, specifics of how you felt like you went about building that trust with your team? It was more complicated than that, I would say, Luke, because when I got here,
2: because there was a culture of mistrust, uh, the school had been overstaffed. uh, And the reason for that, I guess, is if you're not trusted as a staff member to do your job, then you're really not going to go beyond what you're asked to do. You're going to clock on at nine and clock off at five and go home and not do any more. Uh, you're going to keep control of your patch and not let other people know what you're doing so you're going to keep your job and protect yourself you're not going to work collaboratively uh, and because of that then you know lots of tasks don't get done so other people need to be employed to actually do them so when you have a culture of mistrust you end up with you know, a very ineffective organisation people aren't working effectively They're not willing to give more than what they are asked to do. Uh, They're not willing to go over and above. And You know, as a teacher, you you have to go over and above. We we don't work nine to five and have all these great holidays. That's it's not like that at all. Um, We have to give more of ourselves. Uh, And so I had to actually restructure the organisation significantly and move a lot of staff on. So really hard to build a culture of trust when you're actually making people redundant at the same time. Uh, that was challenging. So you had to be very careful of the way I went about that, but also realize that if I didn't do that, then we weren't going to end up with a really great organization. And Paul's school was the Australian School of the Year two years ago. So a testament, I guess, to the great work the staff have been able to do because they are now free to collaborate and do amazing things. So my PhD uh, and the result of the book there was realizing there was a culture of mistrust Uh, I wanted to understand what could I do effectively as a leader to build a culture of trust. So I I ended up doing a PhD into that question. Uh, I was spending up to, you know, I was walking eight kilometres a day around St Paul's, visiting people where they worked, talking to them, and I wanted to know whether that was a waste of my time or whether I would be better off in my office just answering the phone or sending emails or asking them to come see me. But so I wanted to answer that question. So the research uh, entailed me finding four highly trusted transformational school leaders and then going into their schools and asking staff, why do you trust your boss? What is it that they do? Uh, I did a cross case analysis then and found 10 practices that leaders can learn and get better at that will result in the building of a culture of trust. So I wasn't interested in things about personality or character. Or, or words like integrity, I was interested in things that you and I as leaders can learn and get better at, and hence the outcome of that book.
0: So one of those, uh, I guess, 10 principles that you just sort of speak uh, speak about in the book, and certainly, certainly one that you've just alluded to, around eight. Kilometers of walking a day is that concept of presence. And, you know, we've talked to leaders before around presence, and presence is not just turning up. Presence is not just being visible. I guess presence is that idea of uh, deeply sort of connecting with people. Can you share a little bit about your practices there and and did it come easy to you?
2: Uh, I think as I've got older, I've kind of changed and we all change a little bit. I used to be probably more extroverted when I was younger, but as I've got older and I've, I've been. Yeah, you know, through some of the experiences I have, yeah, I've probably become more introverted. So yes, it is difficult for me to actually get out and speak to people and have conversations with people particularly people I have never really met or don't know much about. Uh, so it's, I've got to push myself to actually do that, but realising that it's actually the job. So it, it takes a lot of energy. So my poor wife, when I get home, gee, she wants to chat and see how my day was, and I just want to turn off and just like, no, stop talking. <laughs>
1: just leave me alone. Well, I wouldn't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're
0: talking yeah, exactly. about.
2: <laughs> Precisely. We're talking about a panel of blokes here, but all the women listening are probably going, oh, that's why. So... <laughs> But i i i think i've been blessed with a really interesting memory so you know bergman if you if you knew my story there for some sick reason i knew everybody's car so i would put the kids in the car at the end of the day as they drove through the, the pickup zone it was my job to be on duty and i wanted to do that and that was one of those practices just to be there so i could chat to the kids at the end of the day see their parents pull up, just say something to their parents as they open the, the door for the, for their kids to get in, just to say, look, you know, your, your child had a really great day today. We've just been chatting about some of the things I've learned. It's, it's terrific. And just reinforce that. So be blessed with a good memory. So I'm, I'm good with faces. I'm good at trying to remember something about that person. So next time I see them, I can actually say, so, so how is your daughter? Is she doing okay? Are, are things improved there? So you're building that sense of empathy and connectedness with that person as well. So they're skills that you kind of need to learn and you can kind of fake it as well, too. I shouldn't say that, but knowing people's names, you know, people would say, I know every single person's name in this community actually don't <laughs> but you, know, you do have strategies that help you or give that image that you do so I do know quite a number of people's names but I've also got tricks up my sleeve where I can if I don't know their name I know where to look for it and how to find it quickly and and then I'll come back and I'll know their name and then I learn it and commit it to memory so tricks like that are really important so as you say when you're visible you're also present and you're connecting
1: with people Look, one of the other uh, aspects you describe in the book is really around admitting mistakes and kind of, I guess, showing some vulnerability. And I think on a global scale last year, we obviously saw Jacinda Ardern being very vulnerable at times. And I'm curious as to, I guess, again, whether you found that as something uh, that you found easy as a leader to to do. And I I guess you've alluded to this earlier around admitting mistakes of the past in terms of the organisation. But you know, at a more personal level. How have you found that?
2: I would say, Luke, none of us like to admit mistakes, do we? So ego kind of gets in the way, and there's lots of things at risk and at stake if we admit if we've got something wrong even in our relationships perhaps our relationship with our wife or or our family members if we've done something wrong uh, we don't necessarily want to admit it we want to try and cover it up because we're frightened of the consequences and we probably learned that as a very young child Yeah, we learned to lie as a young child to time yeah, protect ourselves from the consequences from our mum or our dad. If we found out from stealing that cookie or, or, or picking on our brother or sister. So it's kind of part of who we are. And so admitting mistakes uh, was really interesting in terms of building trust because you know, people are human at the end of the day and we do make mistakes. You know, I do make mistakes and get it wrong. Uh, and we often think as leaders that we're meant to be infallible. We're meant to have all the answers and that we've been appointed because we're this wonderful, great person, this font of all knowledge and this guru of all wisdom. in actual fact, no, we've been appointed because we somebody can see in us the potential to be a great leader. Uh, And so admitting mistakes shows that you have a sense of humility and that you're actually human and you're the same as the people that you're seeking to lead as well. And they can connect with you. So, as hard as it is, you kind of need to put your ego aside and acknowledge that you've got it wrong. But when I uncovered this practice of other highly trusted transformation leaders, staff said to me, it wasn't just the fact that he, you know, he made a mistake, but he stood up in front of the staff and said, Look, I'm really sorry. I messed up with this. I'm now going to fix it. I'm now going to go back and repair it. Uh, so, the stories of the past here, the abuse that occurred, they weren't my fault. So, in a sense, it was easier to admit the fault, because it actually wasn't my fault. I think it would have been harder if it had occurred on my watch. I think that would have been really challenging to actually do. Uh, But certainly we've done a lot to fix what happened here. So made sure that victims are listened to and believed and heard and valued as people and they're, as a result now enrolling their kids in the school, which is a, a profound thing to actually happen. Uh, we put in place policies and practices, and of course we have to, to make sure it never happens again. And we work really hard to make sure that we keep our kids safe here. Uh, And that's really important to me as well.
0: And one of the things that I think is also interesting in terms of your story, um, you know, in terms of, I guess, putting your hand up and and apologising on behalf of community is walking alongside a chair, um, walking uh, alongside the church just talk to us a little bit about what that was like uh, and the partnership that you needed to form with with, with your board and the church um, to so i guess put your hands up and say we've got this wrong now we need to fix it
2: that's a challenging question and perhaps one i don't necessarily want to answer uh, in great detail for all sorts of reasons but certainly i would say for a leader your relationship with your chair of your governing body or your board is a vital one. Uh, my research actually looked at the practices that you need to do to build trust between you and the and, and the chair as well. Interestingly, not many people have been interested in, in those practices. They've been more interested in the relationships between the, the, the principal and the teaching staff or the faculty or, the, you know. Uh, but certainly throughout the Royal Commission, I had a fantastic chair and she was amazingly supportive and really got it as well. Uh, in terms of the relationship with the church, the church owns St Paul's School. Uh, for me, that's been a very strained relationship, um, probably because we've had different priorities. Uh, and in a sense, it's been a handy thing for me because I haven't been involved in the actual. Redress process, so the legal process. So, in a sense, I, I could step back and actually be the pastoral person and be the person who listened to the stories and then support that person through the redress process. And they knew I had no control over the outcome of that in terms of how much money they would get. Uh, but that's, uh, it was a very difficult relationship, I'd say. Uh, yeah, for me, probably my biggest challenge as a, as a person. So.
1: And have you got any, I guess, advice for, I guess, leaders or aspiring leaders around uh, working with chair, with the chair or you know, dealing with the board or actually recruiting people for the board? Um, is there anything that you can kind of share around that practice that you've kind of observed over the last 20 years?
2: Yeah, I've been very lucky in the sense I've had some really great board chairs over my time. All of them have been fantastic. I think I'm up to my fourth or fifth chair. Uh, And that relationship is vital. If you don't have a good relationship with your chair, then your tenure is going to be fairly limited. So at the end of the day, you're the one employed. uh, You're the one on a contract, and they have the power to hire and fire you. So if you don't have a good relationship with them. So it's really important to build that relationship of trust and be transparent with them. So I've got a new chair who started this year. We started meeting last year, building a relationship together. We meet once a month formally. We meet once a fortnight informally. Uh, which is an important thing to actually do as well. And I said to him, yeah, what are your expectations of me? And these are my expectations of you. So being really clear in our understanding of what our expectations are and how we work is, is important. And then being transparent with him. So you know, I say to him, if, if there's anything you need to know, I will tell you, so I'll inform you. I'm not gonna tell you about the day-to-day operation of the school, that's my job, but there's something that's gonna escalate go into the media or you need to be aware of because you might receive a complaint or a phone call. I'll, I'll forewarn you and let you know what's actually going on. So that's really important as well. I did have a really difficult period where I had two board members who were really, really antagonistic um, for all intents and purposes that they looked like they were going to be terrific when they were appointed. And I do, fortunately, because I've got a good relationship with the chair, they will say to me, what do you think about this person coming on the board? Are you happy with that person? Uh, so that is really helpful as well so you're kind of not you know blindsided uh, but these two people came on the board and you don't really know until they're on the board but they were, became very very difficult they they unfortunately were parents of the school at the time and we were still going through that process of transforming the school uh, and they really struggled to take their parent hat off and actually be a, a member of the governing body it didn't end them well <laughs> unfortunately but fortunately for me the chair was very good. And those two people were asked to leave the board and, and the board settled down. I, I've had a been blessed with a brilliant board since. It's been very, very good. So they've been incredibly supportive of me uh, and the work that we actually do at the school. So I'm very grateful to them. I couldn't do it without them, to be honest, it would be too hard.
0: Paul, I've got a, I guess, a, a bit of a vulnerable question for you. Um, I, I, I look at your career over 20 years is ahead uh, amazing experiences and such a depth of wisdom uh, and deep reflection about the role of, of leaders in schools and, and your journey. Um, and I, I guess from from my perspective, I'm looking at someone who I kind of see as like a superhero. Like you just, you, you're quite amazing in terms of your story. But what are the things that don't come naturally to you and the things that you really had to work at?
2: Uh, yeah, well, I'm not a superhero. I can tell you that. Um, not at all. Uh, I think I've been blessed with certain gifts and skills um, and I think, yeah, there's lots of things I'm not good at, uh, like curriculum, I've got no idea about curriculum. I I know what good teaching looks like when I see it, but I'm not a brilliant teacher. I never was a brilliant teacher. Uh, So I think having the humility to actually understand where your weaknesses are are, is really important and then building a team of people around you who are really good at that and then having the courage to delegate that to people. So letting go of control was something I had to learn. So you kind of learn these things as you go along. So if, you know, in my book, I tell a good story where I need to let go of something. I did you know, the Bergman and then had to hand it over to somebody else. And when I present and talk at conferences, I tell that story, too. And it's really hard to let go of things. Uh, so, but I had to learn that. I had to learn the art of listening as well. Like, I wasn't a particularly good listener. My wife would tell me that constantly. She always says to me, Paul, you know, I can tell you're not listening, are you? And I always respond, that's a funny way to start a conversation, darling. You know, when <laughs> yeah, do we start a the- conversation. <laughs> so I've had to learn that. So, yeah, I've had to spend a lot of time, and I think good leaders should spend a lot of time reflecting when something's actually happened—you uh, know, a critical incident or a crisis, or even just a project you're working on—and just reflect: uh, what could you do differently if you had your time again, and how could you grow? Uh, they're really important things. So it's 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 hard for me to to get out there and actually talk to individual people. You know, it's exhausting, and I have to force myself to do that. Um, speaking publicly, I'm really good at it but it doesn't come naturally. I've got to work really hard at it. I do enjoy it, but I have to work hard at it. Uh, acknowledging staff, you know, it's one of those practices that build trust. You know, I, I struggle to remember to do that. I've, I've, got to, I've got to keep pushing myself and reminding myself to do that. So I've got a bunch of cards in my drawer, but the drawer's closed. I've got to open the drawer and actually get the card out and thank people. So it, it's always stuff I've got to work on and get better at. And, and leadership is that journey, it's, it's getting better. And life is that journey too. It's about becoming. Yeah, becoming a person of character and at the end of the day, hopefully people remember you for what you did and how you made you how they made you feel uh, rather than the achievements you made.
1: Paul, I'm really curious, I guess, um, about what you're most proud of as a leader. Is it the work that you're doing for your current students or in the experience that you've had? Is it about the what you've managed to achieve for your former students?
2: Yeah, (laughs) there's probably lots of things I'm proud of, but proud because I was part of it. Uh, So they're not necessarily my achievements, but our achievements. So if you were to come to St Paul's, probably the proudest achievement, and it's not an achievement, uh, and I wouldn't call it an achievement, is in the middle of the school, we built a memorial uh, for the victims of abuse. And for me... um, that was a remarkable project to be involved in, like a really remarkable project to be involved in, because it speaks so much about not just the past, but also the future. It it speaks about the culture of the school and who we are today, that we're a school that believes people and values kids. Uh, It speaks about who we were and who we've become. Uh, And it, it really is a reflection of the culture of the school now. And so for me, I guess it's a representation of what I'm proud of most, and that's the culture. Uh, the culture of the school where you can go out and actually talk to kids, and they're loving coming to school, and they're loving learning, talking to staff, and they're enjoying taking risks and trying new things and creating new ideas, just like you guys are at Wesley. Like, you know, what a great culture to be part of, where you can actually pitch an idea to your principal and say, "What about this?" and and, and you're allowed to do it. Like, how great is that? And that's that's probably what I'm proud of the most is where the culture has come from to where it is now.
0: And Paul, you know, as, as we also reflect on, on this, this longevity, I guess, in, in the role of, of headship and the, the wonderful things that you've been part of and the way you've walked with people, um, what are those things that really sustain you, those things that give you life and allow you to do what you do? i would
2: probably say it's my christian faith so if i, if I came back to that it, it's really my purpose in life and what i value and what i believe so i i'm a, I'm a strong christian so you know a, a strong belief in the resurrected christ and a strong belief in his calling that's to go out and make disciples of all the world I uh, use my gifts to obey his two commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. So I wrote a piece on LinkedIn a little while ago about judgment and he never calls us to judge people. He calls us to love people. So what motivates me and drives me is that desire to serve people because Christ has actually served me and, and offered me so much. And that's what sustains me as well as is, is my Christian faith, being able to fall back on him uh, and and. Be rejuvenated by him and realise that there's somebody who's who's had it a lot harder than me. And my job now is just to to do what I'm called to do.
1: I think Matt's got to duck out, but I've got just uh, one last follow-up question, and then uh, quick fire fire, will wrap things Ooh, up. Okay, I'm
2: looking forward to quick fire, fire. See you, Matt. <laughs> Thank All you. Right. Yeah,
1: um, I guess one thing that I get Matt and I were actually discussing this yesterday in, in 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 what you've managed to achieve at St Paul's. Um, You've really brought, it feels to me, like you've brought the community back from the brink of where it might have been. Uh, It's hard to imagine anyone else being able to take over that leadership role. Uh, Is this a role for life for you, or or how do do you consider that?
2: Yeah, that's something I've been wrestling with for some time now too because I was of the belief uh, that the role of a leader is to get in and transform the organization. So Bergman, I was there for 10 years, and I, I, I since achieved the vision I saw for that school. And then it needed somebody else to take it on. So having, I guess, the good grace to realize that your time is up uh, and you should move on and hand the reins over to somebody else is, is something that's really important for a leader. I've been here now for more than 10 years. This is my 13th year. I really didn't anticipate I would be here that long uh, in, in my thinking about what a good leader is. Uh, have I achieved what I wanted to achieve here? Yes, I have, actually. It, the school's culture is remarkable and people are doing amazing things as a result of it. And they don't need me to achieve that. They certainly don't. Um, uh, they can do that all on their own. And so could somebody take the Of course? They could, you yeah, know, definitely. I mean, I've made myself redundant, which is a good thing. Am I going to stop here? Probably am uh, for all sorts of other personal reasons, it's like uh, my children now grown up. Uh, they're married and they're probably going to have children of their own. And my wife has said to me, Paul, if you move again, it'll take me away from my kids and my possible grandkids. Then it's all over. <laughs> so, so I've got that threat behind me as well. Uh, but then, in a sense, I also think uh, some great schools have long serving heads in them. Uh, and so, what's the problem with stopping here for the next you know, so many years? So, really, I guess it comes down to how long the community wants to have me. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, and, I, and I, I guess it just feels like when you've got the experience that you've gone through with the former students, I can't imagine that you could ever disconnect from that.
0: Yeah. You, you're
1: you're inextricably intertwined almost.
2: Almost. Yeah. And the, what gives me joy, I guess, each day when I turn up to work, even though you know, I'm an introvert, he's actually walking around the grounds and, and saying day to the kids uh, and kids, the kids wherever you go. At the end of the day, they are. Uh, but the more you become connected with the community, the more you get to know people's lives and their families and who they are, and the past students and the stories, and the more entrenched you become into that community. So I guess, you yeah, know, that's a really it brings great joy to me uh, as well. And leaving that starting again would be really quite hard. And I don't know whether I oh, want to do that again, whether I've got the energy to do it again. Yeah, I probably have. But do
1: I want to So yeah. The challenge of it. All right, we'll, yeah. uh, we'll crack on to quickfire five. Uh, one word or idea answers. Um, one okay. trait that all leaders must have. Humility. There you go, quickfire answer. answer. I did have time to think about that, so. Well yeah, <laughs> done, well played. Moving on to the next one. <laughs> one word to describe your perfect executive team. Uh, diversity. Yeah, you Good leaders build teams of people who are better than them.
2: Uh, and you need a team of diverse thinkers. Otherwise, you're going to make really poor decisions. If you build a team of people around you who think the same way as you, then you're doomed. You've got to you know,
1: engage people who are better than you and think differently. It's so the diversity. Do you think that's become easier in education? Become, sorry, Luke? Become easier? I don't know whether it's become easier.
2: Uh, no. But uh, I certainly when you have the opportunity to choose your team and build your team, yes. Uh, there's still a lot of work to actually do that, but
1: you do need diversity in your team. One measure of a strong school culture?
2: That's a trickier one, but I would probably say a measure would be the faces of the students. Uh, so particularly first thing in the morning and then last thing in the day. So how they turn up to school and how they leave school. Uh, just their That might lead to
1: the next question. Yeah. What does student success look like? Uh, it
2: certainly looks like that if they're growing as young people uh, and I say young people, because it's not all about results, academic results. It's about the person they're becoming their character. Uh, the choices that they have at the end of the day, the values that they make choices based on uh, are the important thing. So success looks like a well-rounded student who is ready to go out in the world, who's resilient, who's keen to make a difference to the communities in which they'll eventually live and work as well.
1: And you know what I think is interesting about that? Everything you've described there, you can't really measure.
2: No, you can't, can you? Interesting, isn't it? Uh, we measure what we value, perhaps? Perhaps not. How do you measure love? How do you measure empathy? How do you measure character? You can't measure these things, and these are the most important things in life. Absolutely. One book worth reading? Ah, uh, there's lots of books I would encourage people to read, but probably one that keeps coming back to mind because I often recommend it is Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team. So if you haven't read that one, read that one. It's a really great story about how to build a really good
1: team built on trust. thought you were going to say principle there, Paul.
2: <laughs> yeah, I can't recommend my own books. <laughs> you can do that, Luke. So okay, we'll
1: do. I'll find that one. And who would you like to hear interviewed on the podcast?
2: Oh gosh! It have to be an educator. It doesn't have to be an educator. See, I'd I'd love to hear some really diverse leadership views. See, I, you'd never be able
1: to do it. But Donald Trump would be great to hear on the podcast, wouldn't he? Like just to hear the differences. There'd be some interesting sound bites, I'm sure.
2: Oh, wouldn't there? Just like, how is it a man of that character could actually lead the most powerful nation in the world? How is it that people actually admire him and, and really wanted him back in that role when he said and did the things that he did? Oh, it's just extraordinary. Like, I'd love to be able to understand that and just learn from that. So, we learn lots more from people who are poor leaders than necessarily people who are great leaders, uh, just watching them what they do and how they make us feel. So, I, I tend to watch really bad leaders and think to myself, gosh. Yeah, what are they doing? But how are they actually achieving that? So, yeah, sorry, really odd person to ask, Luke. <laughs> Good luck. Well, we'll see it. what I can do there.
1: Um, <laughs> but that's an interesting topic because Matt and I have actually talked about it a few times and I've talked about that in terms of when I'm in a job and I'm working for a leader that I've realised that I'm learning more about the the type of leader I don't want to be Yeah, that's when yeah. I realise that I need to move on. And I yeah. think that's a really interesting you know, like if, if if you've got leaders around you where you've decided that, hey, actually I'm I'm learning more about the leader I don't want to be, then yeah. perhaps there's something there.
2: Yeah. I think so. And I think those sorts of situations cause you to reflect more about your own leadership and what you value, and what's important in life. So yeah, I, I do I do agree. I think you learn more from poor leaders than you do
1: from good leaders. Absolutely. Well, Paul, that brings an end to our show for today. Um I hope you've enjoyed our little chat. Uh, oh, yeah. it's been a great pleasure to have the time to chat with you um hear your story and 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 obviously read your book as well um so thanks for giving up your time thank you very much link it's been a great pleasure i really enjoyed it uh for the audience out there if they want to connect with you paul where's the best place to uh, to find you
2: Uh, probably the best place is St. Paul's School. So send me an email on p.browning at stpauls.qld.edu.au, or you can have a look at my website, www.compellingleadership.com.au.
1: And also on LinkedIn, I noticed that you're on there quite a bit. I am. Yeah. (laughs) And also let's give the book a plug because it is, I actually thoroughly enjoyed the read. Um, Where can they get a copy of the book? Uh, you can get a copy at
2: all good bookstores. So you can buy it online through any sort of online retailer, Demix or Fishbond or Amazon.com. So yeah, you, know, you can get it basically anywhere. So yes, please, because all the proceeds, all the profits for that book actually go towards supporting a scholarship fund for the children of the abuse victims at St Paul's school. So if you do purchase the book, it's a win-win situation. You're supporting those uh, who were abused and their children to uh, attend a great school, uh, and you're hopefully enjoying the read.
1: What a great outcome for that. Uh, Remember, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show and tell a few of your colleagues that you've found uh, this podcast called Ed Leaders. You can also sign up at edleaders.com.au or follow Ed Leaders, Matt and I, on LinkedIn to see what we're up to and to catch the latest pod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next week.
0: Farewell.